This, the 45th episode of the Juice Box Podcast, is brought to you by Insulet, makers of the Omnipod, the world's only tubeless insulin pump. Today's episode, oh my, Dr. Stephen Ponder, author of the book Sugar Surfing. I didn't know much about Stephen. A lot of you were hollering at me with emails and messages. You got to have Stephen Ponder on the show. You got to have Stephen. All right, well, here he is. I got him for you. All right. And let me tell you something. Thank you very much. I didn't realize how much I had in common with Dr. Ponder until he and I spoke, but I really genuinely think you are going to enjoy listening to his ideas about taking care of type 1 diabetes. Episode 45 of the Juice Box Podcast with Dr. Stephen Ponder begins right now. I had this list of people I was hoping to interview for the podcast, and before I could even get to Dr. Stephen Ponder, you guys wouldn't stop sending me emails about it. So I was like, all right, I'll move him up on my list. Not that he was low on the list to begin with. Hello? Dr. Ponder. Yes, sir. Hey, Scott Benner. Scott. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. good. So doing I was business. I was saying as I was um, uh, as I was dialing your number, because we start right away, so you're you're live. Um, um, I was saying that I had you on a short list of people I wanted to talk to on the podcast, but I couldn't even get down to you on the list, not even that you were that far down, but I just kept getting emails and messages online. People were like, are you going to have Stephen Ponder on? I was like, okay, geez, I'll, I'll do it. Leave me alone. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so well, that's very flattering. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. No, I appreciate it. No, really, it, I genuinely mean it. Before we get to why people are so anxious to hear from you, could you just give me a little bit of a professional background and kind of what led you to where you are now? Uh, well, uh, I've uh, actually lived with type 1 diabetes myself uh, since uh, you know March 1st, 1966. I um, um, became a, a pediatric endocrinologist after uh, attending diabetes camp uh, uh, in the early 1980s as a medical student. Um, and uh, basically decided that was the career I wanted to pursue, uh, even though I'd attended camp when I was younger, about 15 years earlier. Um, it was it made a huge difference to me, and I knew that this was something that, you know, for whatever reason God gave it to me, I had the option to uh, share uh, what I knew and, and how I did it with others. And over the next uh, then 35 years, I've, I've dedicated one anywhere from two to three weeks every summer working at that camp, and then eventually becoming uh, a pediatrician, and then going on to become a pediatric endocrinologist, and then um, then dedicating uh, the rest of my professional career to serving children with uh, diabetes and uh, hormonal disorders. And uh, all along that same time, working at the children's camp and uh, doing uh, whatever outreach and advocacy uh, and teaching I could do. And uh, I enjoy teaching uh, people, not just residents, which I'm currently doing right now in the context of being a residency director, but also um, uh, in teaching my patients in the clinic, but even more so recently with the book Sugar Surfing, being able to reach a much larger audience uh, uh, in the form of a book. Um, and even prior to that, using social media as an outlet to teach. It's The medicine has evolved to the point, Scott, where it, we have less and less time with patients, and there's more and more to know. So things seem to be going in opposite directions, and I had to have some way to do that, to bridge that gap. So but what um, I think brought me to your uh, program today was the fact that uh, over the last several years, I was using social media to as, an, as a platform 
to teach patients, many of, pe- many of which were not my patients, obviously, were just people in general, the public. And there was a, an outcry, <clears throat> take all those that, that material and put it in one location. And uh, through the power of, uh, uh, of uh, crowdsourcing, we were able to do just that. Uh, myself and Kevin McMahon, my co-author, who I'd worked with for 15 years on other projects related to diabetes, we put that together uh, in the form of the book Sugar Surfing. And since then, I've just been so amazed at how well it's been received uh, in the uh, across the world. We sold in 30 different countries. Um, I've been able to uh, attend uh, or host host workshops uh, from London to San Francisco and all points in between. And so it's been a it's been a, a very enjoyable journey to to share a little bit about what I've learned over the half century I've I've had type one diabetes. Well, how much of how much of the way you manage your yourself with type one, it, I'm assuming it changed greatly over the decades because of, of um, you know technology. But I guess my bigger thought is, is did your did your overall theory about it change, or did it, did the technologies change and make your theories easier? Because I mean, we're going to learn about this while we're talking about the ways that you see you know day to day management, and that they're probably significantly different than what most endocrinologists are telling people. Um, Correct. Yeah, and I think you're going to see as we're talking back and forth that it's a lot the way a lot of what you're going to say is going to be things that I'm doing, but they're things that I had to suss out on my own over time and toil, you, you know. Um, and so, so you're, first of all, you're diagnosed in the 60s. Yes, um, were, you even te- were you even testing every day in the 60s, or was it just – how did that even no, – the- Back in that era, uh, and, and, I, and I mentioned some of this, it's, it's discussed in the book, uh, <clears throat> back in that era, all we had were urine testing. Uh, we, we could do blood testing, but it usually involved a sharp lance, not a lancet, but a lance that they would shove into your finger, typically a thumb, get a large sample of blood to milk out, and then they would send that to the lab. Or they would just dr- simply draw something from an arm vein, and that one single blood sample, uh, presumably done fasting when you came in, was meant to be a reflection of how well controlled your your blood sugar was. So we routinely used urine testing. In fact, there's an image of that that my mom kept in the book, and I I had I still have that book, her, the very first log book that I had, uh, which was basically a uh, uh, um, a ring binder uh, that she had bought at the store, and used a ruler and a and a pencil to line out uh, um, the the various times of the day that the urine was being tested. And so we checked anywhere from you know, about four. Uh, to five times a day urine test. And then, like anyone else uh, out there listening, over time, sometimes that behavior falls off. So over the following years, uh, it would become less, and we would sometimes just check once a day, sometimes sometimes not at all. But my mom is pretty uh, diligent about making sure that if I got off track, that, that I checked. And it became kind of my routine every morning to, uh, to, to get a sample of urine, uh, be in a cup, and and take a few drops out and put it in the clinitest uh, test tube and drop a tablet in there, watch it boil with some water and um, and turn different colors and hope uh, that I had a blue color and, and not a not a brown or green or, or, or worse than orange. Uh, that would indicate lots of sugar in there. So that's what we did until 1980, until the late 70s, early 80s. And by then, I was already just starting medical school when that happened, when the home blood glucose monitoring came came about. Uh, and I, my first meter weighs about a pound. I still have it mm-hmm. sitting across the room. It was a Dexcom, I mean, I, I mean an Ames uh, uh, spectrophotometer type meter. And so, and it took about three or four minutes to check your blood sugar. You had to get a huge sample of blood 
you had to let it sit on a pad for a period of time, wash it off under the sink, let it dry, and then then either read it visually, and it was a shade of gray at that point. It wasn't any colors like you had in the test tubes. And then, uh, or put it in this machine where it would give you a, an estimate based on a needle that would move back and forth as to how much blood sugar, you, uh, how much sugar was in your in your blood. So we've come so much further now, and anybody listening to this will think that's just ancient history because tests are all done now with about a microliter of blood, uh, with a very tiny sample used from a lancet that you barely feel uh, when you when you poke yourself, uh, and you get it in five seconds. But it, it, there was a beginning to all this, and it was. Uh, by today's standards, pretty barbaric. Yeah, and it's not really that long ago, honestly. I mean, you know, the 60s it probably seemed a little longer to go to some people than it does to others, but you're talking about really just seeing a meter in your home in the in the 80s, you know, in the early 80s. That's, you know, 25 years. That's not a that's not a that's not a big stretch. The the leaps that get made now are they're so grand. I mean, they 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 really do appear to just jump forward in, in big chunks. And so, are you what of that um technology are you using now for yourself personally and um and what do you talk to people about uh, using for themselves well you know my technology has been over the years uh, it's gone back and forth i was on an insulin pump uh, from the very early days in the early 80s uh one of the one of the earlier pumps uh, uh for approximately 30 years uh, i wore an insulin pump and then um, i decided to uh, take a break for a while this is around the time that uh uh, I started using continuous glucose monitoring, and my first monitor was actually I, I had tried the Medtronic products earlier in the uh, in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, and found them not to be very comfortable. I just didn't like wearing them because they were uncomfortable because of the size of the sensor. But then when the Abbott Navigator came out uh, in 2008, uh, uh, I, I latched onto that fairly quickly, and I was working at the time uh, with uh, uh, at JJDI and San at, in um, at in um, um, San Jose, and I was uh, had befriended Bruce Buckingham and his staff, and uh, they had advised me that a navigator was a good sensor to use at that time, so I did that. Now Jen Block, who was uh, Bruce's research nurse, had wanted to write a uh, wanted to write actually a CGM manual, and she asked me if we wanted to do that together, and I I told Jen I said, well, she'd already done one, a brief one, and I said, well, let me just wear this for a while. And so uh, I think we kind of drifted away from each other over time. But uh, over the last, you know, seven years is the period of time I've been using a sensor on and off with a, with an insulin pump. And I use an old Deltec. I have a couple of old Deltec pumps, which are not even on the market anymore, but they work perfectly fine. And I have other old pumps that I've, I've accumulated through the years. So to me, the pump is not so much uh, the big deal as the pump operator. And that's the principle that I kind of live by. So right now, currently, I'm using a, an insulin pen, um, a Lantus. Uh, in fact, I have some Tugeo in the in the refrigerator. I'm going to try. I'm going to try this out. Oh really? And then yeah, and then also the uh, my CGM. And I'm wearing a Dexcom right now. In fact, in the process of getting a, upgraded to a G5. Uh, in fact, as of this morning, I was just paying for my G5 upgrade. So I, that's that's my technology, and I and I have a, a Telcare meter uh, to calibrate it with, and I helped create the Telcare device a few years ago with Kevin. Kevin was the, the inventor of the technology that eventually became Telcare, and that's how I uh, he and I began our collaborations, doing a lot of research in, in in that area. So those are my those are my tools. But honestly, honestly, Scott, it doesn't. I mean, I could use information from any sensor because I. I 
get somewhat agnostic to whether, you know, the brand name of where you get your items. I do think most people would believe that Dexcom is a superior product, and that's, that's what you'll hear from most people in the field uh, over Medtronic. But Medtronic's making some very good advances, and then you have Abbott that's coming out with the Libra in Europe. That's also very exciting. So all these companies are racing to, 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 to you know, to better each other, and the benefit is to all of us patients. Uh, but not so much uh, in terms of the technology, but we need to know how to use this technology. And the book Sugar Surfing is really a how-to manual on how to do that. It's not it's not specific about any particular technology. And I, I always have to make that clear when I'm talking to people because uh, if, they, if they're not familiar with the book, they'll think I'm endorsing a particular way of life, a meal plan, a certain age group, a uh, pumped versus non-pumped. Uh, sugar Surfing is totally agnostic to whether you use a pump or whether you take shots whatever meal plan you choose to eat, how old you are, uh, none, of that, none of that matters. Sugar syruping is really a how-to approach to make better decisions based on having information in the moment. And it challenges the old theory of management, which I adopted and was taught early on, which was static care, static management. You look at things on a spreadsheet and make decisions based on the past, as opposed to dynamic management or making decisions on things that are happening as you speak. And that's what I think you allude to that you've evolved to and many others that are probably listening to this have been doing for a while. They just didn't have anything to call it like sugar surfing. Yeah. You know what I find is the most difficult because I talk to a fair amount of people too and, and um, just a couple of different um, moms this week actually. And, and what I found when I was talking to them more, more than anything, they'd been in the, in the world of type 1 diabetes for a while now. They had figured out, I think, what they need to do. But because the message from their endocrinologist is so opposite of what they've seen to be the truth, no one has the, the confidence to just kind of throw away what they're being told by their doctor and, and do what, they, what seems to make sense to them. And so, you know, sometimes when I talk to people, all I'm really doing is all I really am is I'm like the bad friend behind you. It's like, look, if we don't get arrested tonight, like, what's this worth? Let's just try. Like, you know, like, let, like let's go crazy today and see what happens. And by crazy, all I mean is let's pre-bolus a little bit for meals. Let's, um, you know, you have a, a glucose monitor, so let's lean on it a little bit. Let's be a little, you know, every, everyone seems to err on the side of caution with insulin. I, I prefer to be a little bold with insulin. You know, like, let's, let's be a little heavy-handed with it because I genuinely believe that it is much easier to stop a falling blood sugar and get it to stay balanced than it is to affect a high blood sugar. I think that once your blood sugar gets, you know, over... 250 honestly and then once you're seeing spikes when people spike they really spike and you know 250 300 over 300 you're now you're talking about probably needing more insulin than you think you do but still erring on the side of caution and then waiting 90 minutes to see that oh i'm really only down to like 250 now and then needing to bolus again by the time you take care of a high blood sugar sometimes it's five hours and that just oh, seems yeah yeah that seems That's horrible true. to me Absolutely. Well, you know, yesterday I was flying back from, uh, I was in Phoenix, I was speaking for Steve Edelman at uh, TCOYD, and uh, at the airport in Phoenix, I decided I chose to have some chips, uh, some tortilla chips, mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> those tortilla chips, uh, uh, you know, I took uh, what I usually take for when I have Mexican tortilla chips, but they took more of a, a toll on my blood sugar, but <clears throat> it took me for the amount of carbs that I think were in that and those chips, it took me about uh, 30 units of insulin to turn that trend, to pivot back around. And um, had I been using standard uh, insulin-to-carb ratio uh, formulas, I would have just stayed high the whole time. Uh, and if I had waited um, 
you know, the, the two hours to correct. It would have taken six to eight hours to correct uh, to correct a high. I, I, I tend to wait to see when things will shelf out or level out when I do a correction. So I wound up taking seven units for the chips I ate, another eight units, and another uh, eight more units as as and as I kept pushing down the, the trend line. But it would go down to a certain level, and you've seen this too. Uh, many of your listeners have seen, the, uh, seen this. You may drop down from a 250 and drop it down to a, a 190, and it just kind of levels out at 190 and goes straight. Um, rather than using a basal rate to do that, I just take another insulin dose to drop that further, but I wait for that shelf to occur where you have at least several lines where things just level out. You, f- you feel okay. You don't feel like you're falling, and you don't feel like you're rising either. But then once you shelf out like that and you wait about 20 or 30 minutes if you feel like doing that, then I hit it again and drop it further. And I just keep I keep nudging and bumping and dropping the line, whether it's with insulin or on the on the flip side with, with with carbohydrates. And it's usually smaller quantities of carbohydrates that are needed to raise a a, a seventy five to a ninety than it is to obviously drop something from a higher level. You you're you're perfectly spot on, on that. We all realize that the old formulas that we have just don't work, and they, they've worked in a static thinking world, and they're not bad, in, innately bad, but they're just static. And I think I, I don't try to poo-poo anything. I really try to just uh, say this is the next generation. This is a paradigm shift, as I've been telling people that will listen, that we need to move away from static thinking as much as we can and move those that are ready, and that's many of your listeners, from a static model to a dynamic model, and that's what sugar surfing really embraces. Mm. It's a more a little bit of an organized way of approaching what you and I, uh, and I'm doing exactly the same thing you're doing. You know, I was noticing that when I see this, I'm seeing things I didn't see before by just simply checking blood sugars five to six times a day. Uh, I was seeing a lot more interesting things about myself, you know, mysteries in some ways. Why would certain things work on at one time of the day and different at other times? Why on the same time of the day with the same food do you get a different result on Monday that you would get on Tuesday? And so at some point you come to the realization that diabetes is very chaotic, which I think we all kind of inherently know, but you can actually see it uh, on a sensor screen. But it's also, uh, you know, it, it, it can be quite unpredictable, but the only way to deal with unpredictability is have both hands on the wheel uh, and, and be looking straight ahead, watch your dashboard, and drive through it. And I have to deal with that every day, just I'm sure like you do, uh, where what you think is going to work uh, either works more than you expect, and you have to be prepared for that, or it doesn't work at all, and you have to double down on it or triple down on it like I did before. Yeah, and you can't wait to see. So my my theory is adjusted over time, obviously. And I started out with my daughter was – my daughter's 11 now. Arden is 11 years old. But she was diagnosed uh-huh. when she was 2. And uh-huh. so – there was no, I didn't have a glucose monitor then, and I would just test at the oddest times to the point where my endo would be like, God, her blood sugar seems really horrible, but her A1C is not reflecting that. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm testing when you would tell people not to test, like 45 minutes after a meal. You, you know, because, and she's like, well, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, don't you want to know what's happening? Like, I want to see what's happening. And, and so I wanted a CGM before I knew what one was. And, and after I got one, and it took me a little while to get past the fear, too, because there is that fear of a low. But once I adjusted my thinking, excuse me, my voice just broke at 44, apparently. I'm going through some sort of a change. But um, at, once, I, <laughs> once I got over my, um, my fear of the numbers, I guess, you know, w- once I stopped thinking of 75 as being, like, low and, and, you know, and started using words in my thinking like you were using just now, like nudge and bump and, and those sorts of ideas – and that 
and then it just it, after that it was just something a couple years ago that my endo said to me she just offhandedly said i wish people wouldn't be so scared of using insulin and i don't right. know how to get that through to anybody so i really adjusted my thinking now i will tell you that you know in your chips you know story if arden eats something we're fairly confident we understand that we, we have the right carbs just because you bolus that amount of carbs by the way, doesn't mean that it's going to work. And it also doesn't mean that your insulin to carb ratio is wrong. It just, it might mean for, like you said, this time of day on this per specific day with this food, this isn't going to work. If I see, first of all, there's got to be a pre-bolus for me, 15 minutes at the minimum. And, and that's just how, you know, that's for me. I mean, everybody would be different, but I can see where Arden's insulin goes in, when it starts working, when it picks up speed almost and when to add food. Like I'm a big fan of letting the, the carbs and the insulin have their fight at 80 or 90, not at 150. You know, when, when they're gonna push and pull on each other, let them push and pull at 80 so that if I really miscalculate, you know, a spike means 150, not 250. And at the same time, if after her insulin's been in long enough that I can trust that it's doing what it's going to do, if her blood sugar is rising past 150, we readdress it. And I almost will tell you, if if I've made the, the correct pre-bolus and I think that the insulin's working, there's no real amount of time that I won't say we obviously didn't use enough insulin because I want to stop that. And I talk and I think about it in terms of enough insulin to stop the arrow and enough insulin then to affect the number. And and I don't I don't really know how to put that into words, but I have a feeling that over the next 40 minutes or so you're going to so uh, so I'm, yeah. does that make sense to you though no you're you're doing exactly what i teach and, and you're 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 evolving like i evolved into this too <clears throat> i started doing the moves you were talking about at relatively higher altitudes just so i'd get a feel for how much insulin how much force a unit of insulin had for me i call that micro bolusing i would i would practice that to the point where I, if i was on a straight line trend I'd want to know what is a, a small amount of insulin I know that will work that I can measure. Can I, can I actually get a reproducible, relatively reproducible effect? So I do, I do one unit of insulin when I was trending at 150 straight just to see. And I, I did that several times over a period of time, and I, I got a feel for what my the sensitivity of the steering, if you will, would be on, on this vehicle. And the same thing went for carbs. I might be trending at, at 100. Uh, straight, and you'd say, why would you foul that up? Well, I want to see what four grams of carbs do. So I'd get a four-gram glucose tab, and I'd sit there, and I'd, I could find, I could, on average, bump that up about 10 points. And, and, and just sitting still, not doing anything to confound things. you got to remember, you know, sometimes we're in, going into a headwind, sometimes we have a tailwind, sometimes we have a sidewind or something, something in between. So all these formulas, that's when they start failing, is because if we're dropping, if our blood sugar is 120 and we're dropping straight down, that's very different than if we're going straight up and we're going to get vastly different results. And in the old days, before we really knew about this, thought about this way and this in a dynamic way, uh, we would get all these different results and think it was something the matter with us or something the matter with the insulin or this, that, or the other thing. But the reality is you have to know the directionality, the trending of your blood sugars to make the best uh, best informed consent the decision about what you do, not to mention the food. And, uh, you know, I, I had another fascinating example. This happens to me. This probably happens to Arden every now and then. You give her the dose of insulin. You watch that line. You wait for the bend, as I say, which is about 15 or 20 minutes later. It could be longer. And sometimes no bend happens, and you've taken the insulin. I've waited an hour, hour and a half, and nothing happened. And I had to take a second dose to get that drop so I could take the carbs that, you know, that we try to annihilate the two so you don't get much of a rise. 
But um, sometimes insulin just doesn't have the effect that you expect it to because there are more forces in our bodies that raise and lower blood sugar than just insulin, uh, stress being one of them. And if you're being stressed or, or worried about something, that alone will create enough of a hormonal surge in your body to offset some of these uh, uh, standard doses of insulin you and I might get for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. That happens. Little things like, well, first I'll tell you a story that long before when Arden was a was a really a, a small baby, like, you know, four years old, there'd be moments where she'd get low and it was low enough that it was panicky and you couldn't mm-hmm. get her to eat. And I more than a handful of times, and this is hilarious, I would imagine to have watched, but I've picked a fight with a four-year-old to get her mad to bring her blood sugar up. And it's worked almost every time I've had it. And that was a, la- that was a, that was a, you know, that was a really, I'm down to nothing here. You know what I mean? Like I really needed to do something, but almost to get into a little combative, like yelling match with her and then watch her blood sugar come up with no carbs, nothing at all. Well, let me give you, you know. a suggestion. Maybe yeah. you've learned this since then, but uh, this, that's a perfect uh, application for low dose or mini dose glucagon. Yeah. Um, and, and you'd give her, in her case, you would give her four units of a standard preparation. You prepare for a full low and uh, to bump her up because Classically, we use that when I get phone calls from families about my three, four, five-year-old is low, but they won't eat anything. Uh, but they're not—they're not—they're not unconscious or anything, or having a seizure. And so I said, "Well, get your glucagon, mix it up like you'd give it the full dose, put a whole—you know—hundred units of the diluent in there, and just give one unit for every year of age between you know two and fifteen, and uh, and then wait fifteen to twenty minutes and recheck." And nine times out of ten, it works on the first attempt. And if it doesn't on the first attempt, give it a second time, and it almost 100% works by the second attempt. And it typically raises them up to about 100 or 200, 100, 150. It doesn't shoot them through the roof and make them nauseated like you would if you gave her a full dose of glucagon. Yeah, yeah, in a real emergency. Yeah, I, and trust me, I haven't done that in a really long time. But it's just such a great example that, that you know, like I said, I, I have to bolus when she plays sports that are competitive. But yeah. I don't have to bolus when she's doing the same type of exercise, but they're not keeping score because her, because her adrenaline yeah. doesn't kick in. You, you, oh, you know? yeah. You see people do that. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll tell you the baseball game. I had parents ask me, well, the baseball game, is Fletcher's go all the way up. Well, you know, he's all hyped up. He's all stoked to being out there. It's all excitement. That's what, you know, I, I just came up yesterday, the other day at TCOYD. Somebody asked the same question. You know, it's, it's the basic fight or flight reaction that you heard about in, in high school is that, you know, we're getting this surge of hormones to prepare us for battle or to run away. And both of those demand more glucose for muscles. And so our bodies are hardwired to do that. And if we don't have diabetes, we have insulin to counterbalance that rise from going becoming excessive. But in me and Arden and others, we, we have to sometimes deal with a, an over, a, a huge surge, a, a tsunami of, of sorts of, of high sugar for, with no, no food consumed whatsoever. And that's all just being internally created or released. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just talked to a mom this weekend and she was talking to, uh, to me about, you know, just recreational basketball league. And I told her when Arden, Arden plays recreational basketball, I said, 10 minutes before the game starts, I bolus the equivalent of a juice box. And, mm-hmm. and that way, if for some reason she doesn't look on this game as particularly important and she starts to get low, I, I, I know I have something with me that'll, that'll make it right again without bouncing up and down. And at the same time, you know, sometimes it, you can see the adrenaline pushes through that bolus and you have to give her more. And then the funny thing is, is the minute the game stops and the adrenaline goes away, now you got to go find food because 
because now all this insulin that was fighting with that adrenaline, now suddenly the adrenaline's gone and I watch her drop sometimes. It's just, there's so much stuff that happens like that, that I don't think well, an endocrinologist has a fair job most of the time. No, no they don't. Your, your point earlier, your point earlier you were making, I totally agree with, you know, and I will, I'll, let me go back and answer that question. Yes, I was taught, just like anybody else was taught how to do this, it was very static. Uh, uh, very, you know, preachy almost, and this is the way to do it, and there's a formula for this, and we just got to find the right balance for you and all that stuff. And, and I was I was a purveyor of that uh, of that information as well for the longest time until I finally realized I feel like I'm in an AA meeting here. I'm not mm-hmm. coming out, you know, you know, I, yeah, I was like that, and I was, and I'm sure I taught people that way. Um, certainly, I had it, and I had a better understanding of what it felt to be low and high and all that kind of stuff. But I was still preaching the same party line that was coming out from lots of other uh, endocrine centers, and it really wasn't until I started, you know, seeing things in a more dynamic fashion that I could realize that, you know, much of our our, our management is what you just said that your friend does at the game. Uh, boluses, I mean, gives get boluses for a juice box. It it's basically you're being proactive, and and our management in a perfect world, mine, uh, any empowered adult, is about half of what I'm doing is what I'm planning. The other half is what I'm reacting to that I couldn't anticipate or just happened so quickly that I have to do something about it. When you're talking about people Arden's age when she's two, three, and four, you're largely in a reactive mode. You can try to be proactive, but you're not always sure that she's going to follow through on what you think she's going to do. As we get older, we get more empowered, and we can at least balance it out to about a 50-50. But there's uh, there's nothing I can do that's going to anticipate what's going to happen the rest of today. For example, all I know is what I've prepared for, and that's the thing, is to be prepared. And a good sugar surfer is prepared. I've got my insulin. I've got my juices. I've got my, my fast actings uh, around. Uh, I'm prepared for anything that can come at me, and I just use either frequent blood sugar monitoring, as some sugar surfers do. They don't use the sensor. Or I just use the sensor trending, and I, I make a decision. And I factor in what I've just done what I'm doing right now, and what I'm about to do. You're kind of living in the moment, and that's why I call it dynamic diabetes management in the moment. That's what sugar surfing is, and it's intuitive to many people listening to this as it's intuitive to you and intuitive to me, but as you said, there's an inertia out there uh, that we have to overcome both with physicians and with patients in in regards to insulin. There's this fear of insulin. In fact, I spoke to that uh, at the TCLYD to a large group of adult uh, uh, providers about how they are so slow to introduce insulin to people who need it, clearly need it in the type 2 world, much less in the type 1 world. And then you have patients in the type 1 world who are afraid of insulin because they have one example. And one example, when I, they took one unit and they dropped real quick, and then they immediately rule out ever doing anything like that again. Well, I understand that fear, but you try something once and you get burned once and you'll never want to try, you're going to you're going to box yourself in a corner. And so at least the sensor gives you the ability to get a, get a feel, at least early on, of, of how sensitive your system is to insulin. You can microbolus, as I call it, or microdose. You know, if you're a kid, you know, a tenth of a unit can be delivered through a pump. Uh, you've got to be willing to do a little bit of experimentation with your eyes open, not recklessly, but uh, with, with a purpose. And then, as I said earlier, practice at higher levels than trying to practice at normal levels, just so you get a feel for the sensitivity of the system. And then as you decide to get better, you, you lower your average down to, you know, yeah. I want to target, I target, I pivot around 100. You've seen that picture I showed of the pivoting. Uh, I, I started at 150 to 160. I just want to make sure I could just, you know, hone in on that level right. and, uh, because- and aim at that level because if you can keep yourself at 150 and affect a 150 then you could do it at 120 and then you could do it at 100 and exactly 
After the break, Dr. Ponder and I will continue our conversation about sugar surfing. And do not miss at the end of the podcast details on how you can enter a giveaway to win a copy of Dr. Ponder's book. But first, before we do that, of all the insulin pumps in the world, how many of them are tubeless? I mean, no tubing. No thing to clip to your belt that runs the whole deal and holds the insulin, and then the tubing runs from that deal all the way to your infusion set, up through your sleeve and down through your pant leg. How many don't have that, that that tube that gets caught in everything? Just one, just the Omnipod. That's it. The Omnipod is the world's only tubeless insulin pump, and they are advertising on today's show, and let's thank them very much. Thank you, Omnipod. I'm clapping for you because I really appreciate you supporting the show. Moreover, I appreciate you making this pump. My daughter has been using it for years upon years upon years, and we have had nothing but success and happiness with it. And that's why I'm comfortable accepting the advertisement from Insulet for their Omnipod system. Listen, you're going to want to know more about the Omnipod, and there's really only one way to do that. You have to go to www.myomnipod.com forward slash demo. And there, in a couple of easy click boxes, you put in your name and something else. I don't know exactly. And they're going to send you a free non-functioning pod. See how it works. There's absolutely, and you may have heard me say this before, but there's absolutely nothing set in stone here. You don't have any, you know what I mean. There's just, no, I can't think of the word. Oh my God, what's the word? It's just a simple word. Yeah. All right, listen, but if you really want to, you know, like support the podcast, sure, you can go to that link I just gave you. But if you go into the show notes and click the link there, then they're going to know you came from the show and, and that's going to help them be like, hey, let's keep advertising on that Juicebox podcast, which allows me to, you know, make the Juicebox podcast. So if you're enjoying the Juicebox podcast, click on the link, get a demo pod, do it today. Oh, I just thought of the word I couldn't remember. Obligation. There's absolutely no obligation, which means like just because you get the demo pod, you don't really have to do anything after that. <laughs> obligation. What a simple word. I couldn't think of it. One day I realized I had Arden's high threshold on her Dexcom set at 180. And one day I realized I very rarely ever go over 180. And I started wondering like how much of that was my own expectation. Like how much of that was me reacting to seeing her blood sugar getting near to 180. And so I made it you know, 160. And then I was like, wow, we're not really going over 160 very much. And then, so I pushed it to 150. And now I leave it at 150 during school because I don't, you know, I don't want her to alarm constantly, but then I do monitor her remotely with, with, you know, the app, um, through the Dexcom and then, but we'll bolus for anything. You, you, You know what I mean? Like if she's 130 at school and she's been steady at 130 for an hour, we'll take a shot at that 130, like try to get her down to 90. Um, yeah, you, you know, you're doing that too, microbolusing. Yeah, yeah. So I do that all the time. You know, if I was out working in the yard or playing in the backyard with my dog or something, 130s, that's rocking. I'm right. fine, and I'll, and I'll adjust those limits. And I think that's another thing to keep. Uh, everything's plastic. Everything's adjustable uh, in these in these devices. And and I routinely reset my limits based on what I'm doing. It's like when I'm driving my car through a narrow concrete barriers. I don't leave the cruise control on and sit back with one hand on the wheel. You know, I I sit down sit and, and I bit. focus on what I'm. You know, you have to adjust to the situation. Again, dynamic thinking. And so a lot of people leave those those alarms set too tight or too loose, and they need to be understanding. They can move those as much as they want. Just because the doctor put them in there doesn't mean you have to leave them at 80 to 180. You can you can widen them or narrow them as you need to. And I would say this, and, and I, I genuinely believe what I'm about to say. If you make your margins too big, then when you find yourself reacting, then you're always reacting to an emergency. I'm, oh, my God, I'm too high. Oh, my God, I'm too low. 
if if and it could because what you and I are talking about right now may seem like a lot of extra work to people, but I find it. This is going to sound crazy. Oh, I've got a an alarm going off for uh, to look at Arden's blood sugar. Actually, I find it easier. This is going to be. I know this is going to sound strange to people. I find it less strange. Less. Hmm, there's less drama and less stress. And I find it easier to keep Arden's blood sugar in tighter control than I would to find it in wider control. Because once you're in that space, it is just bumping and, and managing a little bit. And like, hey, here's a juice box, but please only take four sips of it. You, you know, not, they don't just drink the whole thing blindly because you're a little low. And so if my expectation is that we're going to be bumping and nudging periodically throughout the day, then there are very few panic situations. Like I just looked back at her 24-hour graph a minute ago. Arden's only been over 150 twice in the last 24 hours. Once was a spike, and I know it was from food, and once only lasted about 20 minutes. It was just the tail end of something that I kind of didn't catch right. She also wasn't low for the last 24 hours. And so once you find that space and you really are comfortable moving in it, it's actually easier because you're not stressed out like, oh, my blood sugar is too high or my son's blood sugar is too high or it's too low or I'm killing them. Like I hear that from parents all the time. Like every time I see their blood sugar high, all I can think is, oh my God, I'm killing them. I'm killing them. And, and so I would rather have the stress of, you know, if, if one thing is going to stress me out, I'd rather be stressed out that 90 seems like it's possible that that could get low quicker. But I think that what people would notice is that once they get down to that number, there aren't going to be a lot of drastic drops and falls because you're going to know how to live at that space. There is genuinely no difference between being able to keep your blood sugar steady at 90 and keeping it steady at 150. Well, you know, I, I wrote about this a while back. I need to probably repost this one, but you're, you're in what I call the glycemic slipstream, and, and that's where we're at. I'm, a, I'm there right now. I'm, I'm 96. I've been trending straight for the last several hours. And I use the slipstream's kind of an exotic term, but I try to explain it to the kids. It's like, imagine if you have your pet hamster and you're sitting down on the floor and you want to keep them near you. Uh, you just, as long as you just kind of put your hand out there and nudge that hamster back towards you and don't let it get across the room, we have to get up and go fetch it and bring it back or go up there and grab it under the couch. It's it, it's not much effort to keep that hamster nearby as long as you use some little nudges and bumps with your hand. Just Always within reach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, always, yeah. always keep it within reach. Yeah. And when it gets out of reach, then think about the extra work it takes for you to get up, go over there, look for the hamster, go find it, and all that stuff. And, and, and I use a lot of metaphors in teaching kids, but they, they can relate to that. But you're exactly right. If you're in that, that slipstream, that, that, that easy range that you don't need a lot of uh, just a little maneuvering, just your, your, your micro thrusters basically up and down to stay along the, the, the line you want to go. And when you're then, when you're faced with whatever challenge, whether it's a basket of chips like yesterday at the Phoenix airport, or if you want to have that hamburger or whatever it is she likes to eat that may be challenging, then you're ready for it, and, and you plan ahead for it, and you go do it. I don't think anybody should be denied doing what they want to do because my, my goal for anybody with diabetes is to have a normal life, not to have a normal A1C. I mean, that, that can come with the other, but you should order them appropriately. It's about living a normal life and doing the things you want to do and just finding the best choices you can make 
to make that possible. And if it slips away, there's no guilt in that. There's no guilt in my fact my blood sugar went up to 180 last night. I just dealt with it. And the, the fact that I can take take it on and bring it down, just like you and Arden can, that says, hey, you're a sugar surfer supreme. I can tell that. Uh, but that that's what it takes. And, and people can do that. They have to let go of a lot of old baggage that people like me in the past gave them in terms of what diabetes is. You know, it, it's, it, I used to, it's called learned helplessness. We teach people to fear this disease for certain reasons, and I think we kind of part of our brain understands why we don't want people to be reckless. But at the same time, we disable people uh, if we go too far with it, and we routinely go too far with it as an institution. So that's my criticism of my own profession that we are too paternalistic about it. We don't give people enough power to make their own decisions, and, and there are a lot of people out there who are fully capable of making those decisions and doing them very prudently. And sugar surfing was just a way of putting all that in one place for people to. It, there are no graphs or charts in it; it's just annotated images, and it, it walks you through how you can find your do your own discovery. And and you're doing that; you've been doing that, and and, and you and many other people. I, I I somebody told me that you know what is sugar surfing? Well, I didn't. Bill Gates didn't create uh, the computer. He didn't create computer languages, but he made Windows, and Windows changed computers. And I think this could be, in my mind, kind of like Windows is to uh, to how we started. The public became more engaged with computers and writing code and everything and using DOS back in the old days. Uh, that That's kind of how I see sugar surfing. It's dynamic as well. It allows you to individualize your diabetes, which is what we say. We right. want people to have individualized control. Let's, let's give it to them. You know, they, we need to free our people here, guy. <laughs> that's what we need to do. You know, it's funny when you talk about that. Like, I've been handed literature over the years. And and I'm not a I'm not the brightest person you're ever going to meet, but but I'm doing okay. And I've been and I've been handed literature over the years that I've looked at and thought, I don't I, I what is this? You know, like what do I what's a glycemic index? What's this? What are you telling me about like right now? Like my kid just got diagnosed with type one diabetes. I don't even 100% know what that means. But if someone would have said to me, you know what, try to keep it as steady as you can, and if it's going up or if it's high, you don't have enough insulin, and if it's low or dropping too fast. You have too much insulin. Like if they, if someone could have oversimplified it for me a little bit, instead of making it sound scary and mathematical, um, and you know, and I, you see people still like, I wish I could help. I, I said to someone the other day, I don't do any of the things that you probably think I do. I've never once given um, a logbook to an endocrinologist, and my daughter's A1C has been right at six for the last two years. She doesn't have a lot of lows, maybe one a month. Um, you know, her, her graph is not rocky. You know, don't get me wrong. Sometimes your, your infusion set starts going bad before you expect it to. And, and then, you know, you get a little high for a while and you have to, you have to fix it. But, but, you know, I don't hand in log books. No one's ever downloaded my meter. Um, you know, I never taken a class with a dietitian. I just try really hard to keep her blood sugar steady, you know, with, right. with, food and with insulin it, and right. you know i had somebody say to me you know recently and it's a great interview with a woman named beth um her son's blood sugar was always 200 and she started getting into a position where that was comfortable for her and yeah. so they they stopped trying i i think they stopped trying but as you talk to them you could tell they thought they were still trying but as we spoke together she realized she wasn't and in the end i just said to her i'm like beth look i'm you know i'm not in the i'm not in the advice game here i said but if your blood sugar is 200, you're not using enough insulin. I don't really think it's much more difficult, it, 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 you know. And so use some more and see what happens. And she did, yeah. and now everything is is actually much better for her. 
So that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I, that's what you're. I you know, reactive to say the least, right? Because it is difficult to sit around and imagine all of the processes that are happening inside of my body right now, but right. they are probably too numerous to count. And so every time you get up and move or get stressed out or depressed or sad or happy or eat something or drink something or trip and fall. Arden got hit in the knee with a softball three weeks ago. Our blood sugar was high for three days. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and so, and you can't just sit back and say, well, okay, I guess my blood sugar is going to be high for three days because I got hit in the knee with a softball. You have to do something about it. You, you, you know, you can't just say, you can't just say, well, I'll wait the three months and go back and see what the endo thinks. You know, Back to your point about uh, how we teach, it's, it's interesting. We teach uh, how we teach diabetes and versus I think it's a practicable skill, and mm -hmm. that's what you're, you're demonstrating. You're, looking, you're approaching it as I do, which is a skill. If I were to teach you how to play golf but actually teach you how many you know, meters per second the golf club needed to go through the ball yeah. and how, what angle you stood at, you'd look, you'd look funny at me. You know? uh, you'd just get out there, you'd take your stance, I'd probably position you, and I'd watch you hit a few balls. Then you'd have to go hit about a few thousand balls as you got better. Just like when I played tennis, I had to do the same thing. I aimed at a certain part of the court. We had carpet mats that we put so I could serve to the backhand corner. And so those are all just integrative, holistic type uh, you know, acts that I did. And in a way, that's what we're doing now with diabetes. We have a certain skill set. We know how insulin works. We know we, we have the ability now to see its action with a CGM or frequent monitoring. Um, and we know the basics of how certain foods work. In fact, you know your top 10 list for Arden. You know, I always advise know the top 10 list for all your breakfast, lunch, and dinners. And you know the glycemic fingerprint, generally speaking, of those meal products uh, when, when you do feed her. But that's how we teach people uh, uh, to do uh, uh, sports. We, we have them just watch, uh, practice. Uh, you know, we'll demonstrate for them as well. But with, with diabetes, we made it a numbers game, as you said, and um, it, it just doesn't work, and, and, and it, it doesn't work. It, you know, the world is, uh, the body is too uh, flexible, and, and it's always in constant motion, and um, it, it gets you halfway. And I, I, I don't want to totally disregard uh, the standard formulas that we issue to people, but I tell people they're just a starting point. They're, they're, they're just what you throw down there, and then you make decisions based on the situation, uh, and other factors that only you will know because it's your child or it's your body, that sort of thing. And that's, again, that's that's the independence that being a sugar surfer provides you. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it is a starting point. I think that's why it's given that way. But what I would further say about that is then there's too much time in between when you're given that starting point and when you're given the next steps. You, you, you know, and, and how much of that do you think? Because I always imagine it's least common denominator medicine. Like you don't, you see, if you see 10 families in a day, you don't know their backgrounds. You don't know, you know, you don't know what they're good at, what they struggle with, you know, that kind of thing. So you, do you have to, do you see doctors doing that? Like taking things down to the least common denominator so they don't overwhelm a person, but doesn't that end up leaving a bunch of people behind then who could have accepted more and would have understood better? It does. If, if you're being seen about a practice that's not terribly sophisticated, everything will be cookie cuttered out like that. You're right. 
you know, in, in, in a lot of sophisticated endocrine practices, they're going to hopefully have an educator or the doctor himself or herself will know this, and they will they will say, this is a really sharp individual or sharp family. Uh, we can really push them a little bit, and we can give them some fairly advanced concepts pretty quickly once we get them past their survival skills. Yeah. So, yes, indeed. But if you're just everything's a standard formula, and unfortunately, a lot of type 1s are still managed by, by primary care people, uh, that's what you're going to be stuck with. And even some of the specialists will, you know, if they don't get to know you well enough, or, in your, or if you're in a group practice where you'll see this, a different specialist each, each time within a general, uh, 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 you know, endocrine practice, <clears throat> that can be challenging as well. So, uh, there's yeah, no there's a lot of then. Yeah. You don't, it, you can don't... Get, it can throw you off your rhythm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it just, it really is, it's such a shame. It's one of the things that I feel like burdened by when I look back into the community because what you see online, like a lot of the people online or newer diagnostic, they're looking for information. And so, you know, you don't see a ton of people around who've been around for a long time. And, you know, and I think that's fantastic. Actually, I think being able to come to the internet, find the information you need and then get back to your life using that information. I think that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, we don't, we don't teach people. Uh, the problem is we don't teach people as much as they, they need to be taught. And, with the exp- explosion of, of more knowledge that needs shared, um, you know, um, and, and things like sugar surfing, for example, there's still so much static thinking going on out there. There's less time. Our visits have been called down to 20-minute encounters, which are largely going over medications, filling out forms, collecting data. Uh, and then in terms of teaching, there's very little done unless you arrange for a separate visit with a diabetes educator, which then may be weeks ahead, and that may not fit somebody's schedule. And so most people do go online, they go to books, they go uh, wherever, or they get uh, advice from friends and family, which may be obviously not correct in some cases as well for what to do. And that's where we wind up where we're at. That's why there's not been any significant uh, improvement in overall diabetes control in spite of all these wonderful medications and devices that are out there because we're not spending time on what really matters, which is good professional training and support because that's not something that the system pays for very well. It'll pay for a new sensor if, you have, if you're properly covered. It'll pay for a pump if you have certain coverage. It'll pay for a lot of your medicines, but it won't teach you how to use those medicines or those devices uh, to your best ability. It, it, it'd be like the, well, in a sense, think about it this way. You know, when you buy a car at the car dealership, do they teach you how to drive? No, they assume you kind of know how to do that whether you do or not. And so, uh, that, so that's we're kind of set up like a car dealership. You know, we're not teaching people how to do this. We're just giving them this this information. We, you know, we have educators, thank God. But diabetes education is really uh, it, it's it's been slipping in the last few years, and because um, big uh, insurers and, and hospitals are not seeing their value, and I think they're incredibly valuable. Uh, but education programs across the country have been faltering uh, because financially they're not considered uh, they're considered somewhat of a loss leader. Uh, even though, in my opinion, it keeps people out of the hospital, it keeps them out of the emergency department, uh, it improves the overall level of control. But uh, getting administrators to to buy into that sometimes is a, is a is a is a, t- a long haul. I think that it says a lot, and and this is I'm using myself as an example, but I hope it doesn't seem boastful because I don't feel that way about it. But in a system where I probably get more correspondence from people who say things like. Thank you for sharing this because my son's A1C came down a full point. I think it's because of what you said. Or in a situation where I can spend 10 minutes on the phone with a mother of a four-year-old and stop all the spikes on his, on his graph in 10 minutes worth of conversation. You, you yeah. know, when, when that's a more viable way to get to good information than going to your doctor 
then things are so messed up that I wouldn't even know where to begin to fix them. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, how is it possible that you have a lifelong serious disease like diabetes and someone who's had it for a year probably knows better than the person who you are taking direction from? Like, I don't, it, it's horrible. It's true. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely, but you're absolutely right. And it, it is true. It, you, you, your doctor, uh, and I, I train doctors, and I know that the residents I train, they know what diabetes is, but they can't even begin to address some of the things I'm talking about. And they'll graduate and they'll become. Uh, you know, um, board-certified pediatricians. Now, I'm not training fellows, but even the fellows, you know, they're they're mentoring under their their the people that are training them, uh, who may have a certain attitude. So you can see where this, you know, one one cycle begets another cycle. And um, I, I know a lot of endocrine fellows, of course, it tends to attract people like myself with diabetes. So we we have a, a particular insight. One of my partners has type one diabetes, who's a feeds endo. But uh, but even we look at things a little bit differently. I, you know, even the dynamic thinking thing that didn't that didn't come on to me until relatively late in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I was still a static thinker, static manager, and uh, for for the longest time. So part of my long term vision for what I want to do with sugar surfing is Kevin and I really want to change that, do a paradigm shift on how we manage diabetes. And, and, and part of this discussion uh, revolves around that is how do we get people to think outside the box and not in their little bubbles and say, you know, insulin can be used at different times. Uh, uh, stacking insulin, uh, which is a dangerous term that's used in a dangerous way, is not necessarily a bad thing if done properly, if I, done with eyes open. I do it every day. Every, yeah. every day. Yeah. yeah. And that's and that's what happens, you know. And the other thing is, you know, breaking. If you overdo it and you have to break it with some carbs, think about this. When you think about this, it makes perfect sense. An artificial pancreas, whenever that device or that technology is fully developed, will not just be a device that gives you exactly how much insulin you need. You need. It'll be a device that will also give you a counterbalance, which will be right now glucagon, something that would that would raise a lowering a low a low blood sugar because the dose of insulin it gave you. Was more than you needed. Yeah, Yeah, because the machine does not know what you're going to do. And that's what I tell people in in workshops is you have at least the ability to look forward into time, at least make some plans. The machine can't do anything but react. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. And and right until they get, until they get uh, 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 materials or, or drugs that work so quickly that it can react as fast as you can act, you can act. Then, then we'll be at, a, at an okay place. But right now, those do not exist, you know. And and so when, but that that could change, in, in, you know, in the distant future. But I'd rather do what we can to help people now with what we know. And sugar serving is, a, is an approach that works for a lot of people. It's not, it's not for everybody, and there's still a lot of people in this world who still, you know, struggle with, uh, you know, with dynamic thinking in terms of diabetes and would be more comforted, at least for the time being, with a static approach. But my vision in Kevin's is to change the paradigm on how we teach diabetes and offer more people these options that you and I have been doing in the shadows for the longest period of time. Yeah, well, see, while you were talking just a moment ago, I, I came up with a question for you, and you almost, you almost answered the whole thing. But if, if I gave you the, the, the power, you gave you a magic wand, would you bring into existence an artificial pancreas or smart insulin if you could only bring one? What do you think, oh. what do you think is a oh, okay. better answer? Well, I think that I, I see where you're going with that mm-hmm. question. Uh, the smart insulin is one that 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 goes becomes less active uh, based on the level of blood sugar in the body. Uh, it, it's to me, I like the most elegant solutions for things. So if if it was the magic 
wand, and we had, as you say, smart insulin that would stop working when you got below, you know, 75 or, or, or 80, and it would activate whenever you got over that period and activate it proportionally just to what you needed to maintain a, a you know, a center point of, say, 95 or 100, then, yeah, that would be far superior than than to a to a to a mechanical device. So so I'm going to speculate beyond what your question said and say, yeah, I would go with the with the smart insulin because the 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 artificial pancreas is a constantly evolving and constantly changing technology. Plus, it has it's 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 uh it's it has, it's high maintenance. It, you know, you have to have this thing. You've seen the pictures of the. You probably talked to some of the people who've worn them. Uh, you have to be. You have to be strapped to the device, and 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 it's exciting, and I, I I'm I'm all for it. I think everything's progress is great, mm-hmm. but we all have to live our daily lives, and we have to make decisions and choices, and we all know how hard it is just to maintain an insulin pump sometimes, much less an artificial pancreas, yes. and and then maintain our cell phone coverage, much less having the machine tying into the computer all the time to decide how much to give us. So, I I understand where that helps a lot of people who may just struggle overall with their diabetes. If if I were offered the opportunity to have artificial pancreas right now, I'll be honest with you, I'm doing fine. My A1C at 5.3, 5.4, and, and the empowerment I feel of being in charge of my diabetes, I'm not willing to give that up. I like the dominance I have over my diabetes. After after decades of feeling subservient to it, now I feel that it works for me that I own it. And uh, and I don't want to, actually I don't want to give that up. If you want an honest answer. Even if I were to wear the uh, artificial pancreas, I might do it just to say I did it. But um, honestly, I get more gratification out of doing what I'm doing right now, which is, you know, I glance at my sensor. I'm, I'm 94. I've only drifted down a couple points, and that's just within the variance of the machine to begin with, and I'm straight lining. And, I, and, and that's how much effort it took for me to do what I'm doing, just like what you're probably glancing at Arden's readings as we're talking right now and making decisions. I mean, and it doesn't keep you and me from doing this. And you might even tell your, your listeners just heard the fact that you're doing a podcast with somebody as, at the same time you're managing your child's diabetes at the same time as the person you're talking to is managing their diabetes and nobody skipped a beat. No, I've, I've told my daughter to give herself insulin once while we've been talking and we've adjusted her basal rate. So. Yeah, there you it, go. Yeah, it just um, – and. And that is what, you know, so I think what, what your message is, is, and what mine always has been, I, it's interesting we're finding each other, is that you just really do have to empower yourself to do that. Because when you just talk now about, like, not even wanting to give back the control that you've found, I don't think that, that that dominance over diabetes, the way you put it, like, I don't think that's far off for people as long as they know the path to take to get to it. But, right. but, but if you're... If you're being given nine different things, you know, from a doctor and from friends and from the internet that all sort of conflict with each other, that can get really frustrating really quickly. And, oh, and yeah. you, you can throw your hands up in the air. So I, um, you know, so um, I'll tell you what, what, why don't we run a, a giveaway for your book and, and we'll give somebody your book and, and at least help one person. Um, Certainly. I'll do it on the blog. And um, we'll give somebody the opportunity to see the book. And, and do you see, and you see people, um, so this is the kind of my, my, I guess my last question I want to ask you is that, um, how do you, because you are seeing patients, how do you get this across in the 20 minutes that you have? Well, I, most of the patients I see now are, are well logged into, uh, to my online sites, the, the, the power within by Stephen Ponder and, uh, sugar surfing on, on Facebook. I, 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 I post on a regular basis, uh, information out there. My my staff or people that are be one of my nurses was my former patient. Uh, he's a, a male nurse who's a CDE and type one himself. 
Um, he he walks the walk, talks the talk. The other one is a young man who's a well, he's not young. He's 40 this week. Uh, but he's a ex-military uh, and he's in, in a nurse. And he worked for me in my private practice before I came back where I'm at right now. So I surround myself with people who share the way I do things. So they're teaching the way that I teach, um, and that's how I've done it. I've been able to. I've been fortunate over the years to have people that I trained who look at things uh, the way I do. And uh, the 20 minutes uh, on my first visits, I have more than 20 minutes. I, I'll take an hour, hour and a half. I'll schedule more frequent visits for follow-up as necessary. Uh, I have the online presence. I wrote the book. And this, I'll tell you what, God, this is the frustrating thing about the book in some ways. Many of my patients would benefit from the book, and, and they're always looking for more information. I said, well, I wrote a book, and uh, some of them will say, well, we have the book, but we haven't opened it yet. Well, what's holding you back? Other people have totally tabbed it up from one end to the other and highlighted it. So right. that's the range you get. And, and, and I have to say, I have to admit a little bit of frustration with this because I tell them, I'm, I, I, had, I took nine months to write the book. You know, I put everything in there. There's a lot, I, I won't say everything will benefit you, benefit you, but there's a lot of stuff that will. And a lot of people have become, have posted online from around the world uh, something you said earlier, how much of a difference it made for their diabetes. So what's holding you back? It's right there. It's a resource. It, it begs the question is we have all this knowledge out there, but what good is it if nobody ever picks it up and looks at it and reads it? Now, I can I can coach them, and if I had the opportunity to coach people, this is a model I think it would be exciting to do, actually. If there were, if we had health coaches that or diabetes life coaches that had, were armed with this technology, that's what Kevin and I have really been talking about over the years. Was to develop a, a sugar surfing, sugar surfing certification, uh, so we could broad base this stuff and get this out to more people than just people who read the book and who are self starters that way. But actually have a coaching mechanism for that. That's that's a long term vision for where sugar serving is yeah. going to go. As a, to certify other people, just like I'm a certified diabetes educator, uh, but find some way to, you know, and they're certified pump trainers, but there could also be a sugar a certified sugar surfer, and we would give them a certification. So <clears throat> that's a dream. That's that's still a, a ways off, but right now we're just pleased that that the the message is resonating, and and people like yourself <clears throat> have already embraced the message in your own way and have been using it, and it's uh, and I hopefully you you found it validating to what you've already been doing. And, and empowers you even more, and the other people who may be listening to this. And I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunity to give a book away uh, to someone who would benefit from it, and we'll be happy to ship it to them. So um, just let me know when when that uh, when you find that uh, that special family or person. Well, yeah, I well, see what I'm hearing from you is, I'm hearing. I mean, obviously, as a physician, there there are better ways for you to make money um, than to give people hour long, you know, uh, appointments and to and to take your knowledge and put it online where I'm assuming people are getting it for free at your website and thinking, what is your website address? It's sugarsurfing.com. And so, and so this is obviously a passion for you. Um, and it, it comes through when you're talking about it. It absolutely does. And, and I can absolutely talk to, I, I wrote a book myself. Um, and it's not easy to sell a book, even if they're not expensive, even if they are, you know, even if there's a thousand reviews that are like, look, I swear you'll like this book if you read it. And, right. uh, and it, it's a book's a hard thing to, uh, to, to, to get into people's hands and to get them to open. And so I feel for you with that, especially because I, I'm hearing that you feel like you put the secret to their health in this book and please open it and look. You know, so I definitely get that. I, I really do, and I, I feel for you. Um, but, but what, like you said, we'll give, we'll do a giveaway, and we'll we'll get one out there, and and maybe that person can uh, can benefit and tell somebody else, and and that's how the uh, the message will grow. 
that'd be wonderful. Yeah. That'd be wonderful. I appreciate that. No, Thank absolutely. You. I, I, it's my pleasure. Like I said, I, you are one of those people who I saw online for the last year or so. And because we were in a really good place with our day-to-day management, I don't think I ever really, um, chased you down or tried to figure out what you were doing i saw when the book came out i was like oh that's nice somebody wrote a book but i never really looked into it that far um and as soon as the podcast kind of took off and the popularity rose around then i just started hearing from people right away like you have to tell people about steven so i was you know i was thrilled to do it so thank you for taking the hour to do this i know you're actually in your office at work right now so thank you for taking the time well, uh, thank you for the invitation, Scott. It's an honor to be on your podcast, and, and it's an equal honor to, to be able to share ideas with you and hear uh, where you're going and about your daughter and how well things are going there. So I know you're very proud of her, and uh, I'm sure she's extremely proud of you, as as is the rest of your family, yeah. especially in this week of Thanksgiving. <laughs> you're kind, Stephen. I've been married a long time. I don't know if my wife even likes me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, on that note. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just kidding. I appreciate you saying that. I really do. And it, it is such a, a family thing. Like Even as the one real interesting thing that we see is that you know my wife you know works full-time, and I've been a stay-at-home dad for like 16 years. So once I figure out how to do something and it's new, it's difficult to just to like give that to my wife in a way that she can just automatically start doing it. Like I can even see her. I'm like, look, you know, you need to start using more insulin when you're by yourself with Arden. And she's like, based on what? And I'm like, uh, based on trust me, you, you, you know, like, like because and that's hard because that's not a real instruction to give to somebody. It's more difficult between spouses, I think, sometimes than it is between the doctor and a patient to, to kind of give that information back and forth because, you know, there's there's something she's been doing for a long time with Arden that works, and I'm seeing through time, you know, slowly, incrementally, that it's changing, and then one day I just, I stand up, you know, and make this pronouncement, like, by the way, this is what needs to happen now, but she didn't have the benefit of taking that walk with me. Well, yeah, you're. It's well, it's you're trying to transfer a skill, and, and you know, if you can, like, use a sports metaphor, you if you can throw a baseball, that doesn't mean you can just transfer Coach that it. act to her. Right. She has to learn that through her own journey, and the same thing applies here. And that's what I think a lot of people misunderstand. They don't see diabetes care as a skill; they just see it as a series of actions, and that somehow they'll all fall into place if I just follow the recipe. Well. There are lots of examples out there of just following the recipe doesn't result in what you in the outcome you desire. You have to have a certain skill and experience, and you obviously have that. And uh, it's something you can't just easily transfer. You can try to walk people through it, but you really can't transfer that. That is unique to you, Scott. And it's frustrating because I know right now, if you brought a person into my house right now and they had a glucose monitor on them, and just turned their care over to me, I think I could do within a day or so to their graph, what I do to my daughters. But at the same time, you know, I think even if someone was watching it happen, they wouldn't leave with the information that would be necessary to, to, to duplicate that. It is, it's, I, I don't yeah. doubt you in the least. In yeah. fact, I think that's exactly true. I think that, uh, you know, I, I actually make a similar comment to new onset uh, families that, you know, they're, they're in the hospital for a while. And I say, you know, honestly, the, the, the kid is not in the ICU anymore. Let's say their, their blood sugar is being managed on the floor. So I could take your son or daughter home right now and take care of them because I know what I'm doing. And in, in the next several days, we have to find a way to get at least a minimum a, a level of training so you can at least go home relatively safely. And then we still get calls, of course, because they don't know how to deal with the situations that come up. They can give the shots, they can check the blood sugars and so on, but they don't know to, how to manage the problems that occur, the unexpected things. 
and that's a skill that takes time. And uh, and you have atta- attained that level of of, of excellence, uh, proficiency. It's even beyond proficiency. And I, I have no doubt that I could give you any of my patients, and and within a day or so, you could get them in line. You know, with uh, with the information you have and the experience you have. That's what I'm getting at. Is you would be one of our prototype uh, sugar surfer, uh, cer- you know, certified sugar surfers in trying to you know motivate and educate uh, people. You know, just find, we have to find a mechanism to make that happen someday. Yeah, well, I, I wish you luck with it because that, that sounds like a very worthwhile journey. So, all right, I, I've held you longer than an hour. I apologize. But but okay. thank you very, very much, Stephen, for coming on. Thank you so much, Scott. You have a great day and a great holiday, okay? You too. Happy Thanksgiving. God bless. Bye-bye. Hey, you've just heard Stephen talk all about his theories about managing type 1 diabetes and his book, Sugar Surfing. If you want to purchase that book, it is available on Amazon, and there's a link in the show notes to it. But if you want to take a shot at winning a copy, Stephen is going to give one away through my blog. Let's say, what's today? Today is the 2nd of February. Let's say we're going to let the giveaway run till the 12th, Lincoln's birthday, in honor of President Lincoln. We'll let it run to the 12th. In case you're listening to this after February 12th, then there is no giveaway. Just go ahead and buy the book. So go to ardensday.com, and there'll be something right on the front page where you'll see uh, a copy. You'll see Stephen's book and and a little link that says click to to enter to win the giveaway or something like that. I haven't really worked out, obviously, all the verbiage details, but trust me, you'll see it when you get to ardensday.com. Also, if you go to juiceboxpodcast.com, there'll be a uh, blog post there about Stephen, and in there, there'll be a place to also enter. Stephen's going to give away two copies. Now, one copy is a paperback, and that's going to be available for U.S. residents only because of shipping costs, but the other copy will be an ebook, and that's going to only be available to people who live outside of the U.S. to try to make things fair and give everybody a chance. So two copies, one paperback, one ebook. the paperback for U.S. residents, the ebook for people who live outside of the U.S. Get over there, ardensday.com, and uh, take a shot at There's plenty of different ways to enter. Also, while we're thanking people, Insulet, the makers of the Omnipod, the world's only tubeless insulin pump. Thank you very much for sponsoring the show. Don't forget to go right into the show notes and click that link. Get yourself a free demo pod. Support the Juice Box podcast. Something else must be important to say. Follow me on, like, the internet. You'll find it at Arden's Day, at Juicebox Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to go into iTunes and leave it a rating and a positive review. It really does help the podcast get found by other people. Remember, nothing you hear on the Juicebox Podcast is advice, medical or otherwise. There'll be a new show next week. See you then.